0: All right, how we doing? I was going to say, um, what a amazing day we have, and uh, looking forward to tonight. I want invite, to uh, invite everybody out to the Y here in town. Um, Austin's going to be there, and it'd be great to have you come and say hi. If you don't get a chance after church today, um, have a little time there where you could come in, pop in, say hi, and uh, crush him at volleyball, apparently, and... <laughs> Um, humble him a little bit. Uh, what I know about Austin is that he has a bad knee. So just kick him in the knee and he's, he's done. So, all right. It's, it's going to be a great day. I, I want to remind you just a little bit from last week. Um, we were talking about uh, the uh, issue, the need to think biblically. It's one of our core values, our mission to think biblically. And uh, the the thing that was going on in John chapter 8 from last week was that Jesus was debating, uh, arguing with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, about uh, where they said they came from. They said that they were descendant from Abraham. Um, and he said that they were actually descendant from the devil. Now, that's a pretty strong statement, would you agree? Uh, that That's pretty in your face that, that they're uh, from the devil, they're offspring of Satan. And the reason why was not because they didn't know the Bible or even believed the Bible. This is what is um, important for us to understand. They were religious people, they had the scripture, they believed the scripture, but they lacked faith. So they took the scripture and they began to believe that they were saved because of their ability to live out the, the rules of God, and they no longer needed God. And Romans says it this way, Romans 9.30, it says, What shall we say that the Gentiles, Gentiles are just anybody who's not Jewish, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And so what happened was even though the scripture had told them everything they needed to know to expect a savior, they rejected the the idea, the need for a savior in order to continue in their man-made religion. And that they were okay with that. They were comfortable with that. They did not want to give it up. They didn't want to exchange the plan of God to, when the, the Bible tells us that the scripture, the law, was given as a tutor or a teacher to instruct us of our need for a Savior. And they rejected the Savior and they began to uh, adhere simply to the law apart from Christ. So what happens to you and I as religious people, okay, I was just thinking our church is full, except for this section right here, the... <laughs> Uh, The Kellys are gone, so I don't know. That just threw me off a little bit. But um, we tend to be religious people, more or less, right? We come to church. We give our offering. We sing songs. We listen to the Bible. We we get into Bible studies. We try to live out our faith uh, authentically in the world as when we leave this place, and it's a big part of who we are. Scripture tells us that we can become comfortable in going through all those actions and to the degree, to the point where we stop feeling a need for a personal relationship with God. And when we begin to do that and we stop living by faith and we start living by works or by our own goodness or our own self-control or whatever form of religion that we've formulated, we depart from the connection that we have with God, and we begin to become open to the leading of the devil. And we got to be very careful about that. What does he he do? What does he want to do? How does he work? Um, This is where we need to pay attention, um, how he undermines biblical thinking. Because we're not talking about his activity of undermining biblical thinking among those who don't know God. We're talking about his efforts to undermine biblical thinking among the church. Those who are religious. That's our problem, and we need to address it. We need to understand it, okay? And so we're going to do that, um, at least for a couple weeks, um, addressing and understanding Satan's role um, and how this works. So let's stand as we read God's Word. We're in Genesis. We're going to go back to the beginning here, Genesis 3. And starting in verse 1 says this Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, they knew, that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, as you reveal um, the warnings, how how these things come about—the pain, suffering, sin, death. Um, how the wedge between man and and you has been formed and continues to um, have its disastrous effect, Lord, that, that we see ourselves separated from you without faith. Lord, we need to come close to you. We thank you that your word tells us over and over that if we will draw close to you, you will draw close to us, that you've given us a way for that easily. Lord, it wasn't easy for you. You had to sacrifice that which was most precious, but you did the work. You did all that was needed so that we can come into a, a personal, close, intimate, permanent relationship with yourself. And by faith, Lord, we claim those promises. By faith, we are changed by your work on the cross, Lord, on our behalf. And Lord, we pray that as we receive that healing, restoration, um, Lord, that we would never take it for granted. We're going to have difficulties and we're going to have questions and we're going to have concerns and doubts even, Lord, but I pray that we would uh, always return to you seek you desire you above anything else that this world has to offer and lord help us to be wise to the tricks and the schemes lord that seek to separate us the things that seek to confound or twist around our understanding lord help us to know the difference between truth and a lie and to always choose you and lord we give you all the praise you can you can do much more than we can even imagine. And so, Lord, we're depending on you. We're asking for you uh, to speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, reveal your truth, and uh, change us, Lord. Make us more like you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the, uh, the first thing that we see, we have, we're three chapters into the whole story of the world, and uh, we're already introduced to its archenemy, Satan. Um, who is he? Where does he come from? How do we, how do we understand this, uh, this creature that is um, assaulting mankind? And all, it's kind of interesting in Scripture that we don't get a clear uh, depiction of his fall. We have a, a few different places where it seems to allude to it, talk about it, um, maybe imply it. Uh, But we don't have this very clear story in Scripture about here's what happened, here's how it went. And so I want to just share with you uh, a couple places that many people believe are um, illustrations or stories about the fall of Satan. One is from Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 verse uh, 12 says how... Now, this is um, uh, clearly, it says talking about the the, uh, king of Babylon. It's a lament over the king of Babylon. But there's an implication because of the wording that it seems like it might be uh, also a a, um, story about the fall of Satan. So here's what it says. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son son of the dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So those things sound like um, somebody that's more than human, some, a creature that is uh, bigger than, than just a king. He's going to make himself equal to God. And so we believe or think or some people interpret that that's also talking about Satan. Verse 15 says, but you are brought down to Sheol. Sheol is another name for the grave or to death, um, to the far reaches of the pit. So there's that story. And again, it's arguable. Okay? It's not, a, not an absolute definition of how Satan fell. It's just it's an arguable definition um possible illustration of his fall. In Ezekiel we also have in chapter 28 uh verse 14 uh starts talking about uh, another lament over another king, a different king. This is the king of Tyre and it says, "You were an anointed cherub, guardian cherub." Um so that sounds like possibly that's not just a king that might be a, a bigger spiritual meaning, okay? So this is why we interpret it this way uh, sometimes. It says, "I placed you uh, I placed you, you were on a holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. And it also says, uh, so I brought fire out from your midst and it consumed you. I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. So it sounds like this is not just maybe uh, the king of Tyre, but possibly another illustration of Satan's fall. Okay. And many people agree with that. Many people interpret it that way. Uh, Here's what's interesting. The Bible doesn't ever Go back if you so. One way, one of the ways that we always try to interpret scripture is to let scripture interpret itself. You ever heard that before? So, you read the whole council of scripture, you let the scripture speak to different parts. So, different parts of scripture are quoted elsewhere, and so it gives you a better understanding of it. Nowhere else that we can find in scripture talking about Satan does it refer back to those two stories and say, Oh, yes, the Bible says this is how Satan fell. So, we interpret it this way a lot of the time, but the Bible doesn't necessarily confirm that interpretation. And all I'm saying is that the the story or the the real, you know, definite account of the fall of Satan is kind of one of those things that we take for granted. We don't know for sure exactly how it happened. Um, But we do know that the Bible clearly says that Satan is a personal being, it's not just the idea of sin and evil in the world. He is a personal being. He is a living creature. Uh, the Bible says in um, Revelation, some of the names that we have for Satan, Revelation 12 and verse 9, if there's any question about you know, who Satan is, is the serpent in Genesis 3 really the, the, the devil? Is he not? Here's what uh, Revelation says is two different times. Now, Revelation 12:9, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. So four, possibly five different names for the same person, this, this creature, Satan. And then over in Revelation 20, it also tells us again, almost with the exact same words, Revelation 22, verse 2, says, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. Um, and he's going to throw him into the uh, abyss for uh, a thousand years, okay? So here's what we have. Satan means that he is the adversary. He is the uh, the one who is opposing God. He opposes man. He opposes believers. He's the adversary. Devil uh, means that he's the accuser. So it's another personal name for Satan. He accuses God to man. He accuses man to God. And and he also, if he can, accuse man to man. He loves to cause division wherever he can. So he's Satan, he's the adversary, he's the devil, he's the accuser, Uh, he's the serpent of Genesis 3, and he's the dragon of Revelation. Now, here's the interesting thing. If we're going to physically describe Satan, what does he look like? We have two descriptions that I've just read to you. A serpent in Genesis and a dragon in Revelation. And the, the Revelation dragon, I mean, is serpent-like. The, um, what the scripture seems to indicate is that Satan is a fallen angel. Now, our depiction of angels is probably more or less um, pretty, I don't want to say this, sanitized, commercialized. How many of you had a biblical angel on your tree this Christmas? Your, your angel, if you had an angel on your tree, probably female. Female. Which Scripture never describes angels as females? I don't know if you know that. There's one place in Zechariah where there are winged females who are carrying a basket, but we're not sure if they're actually angels. That's it. Every everywhere else in Scripture, angels are not female. Um, But our tree has an angel, blonde hair, usually like long blonde curly hair. I don't know. Apparently, that's really angelic, and you know, beautiful. You know feminine face and big uh, white wings and a a white gown, right? And that's our depiction of an angel and probably holding a harp or a candle or something like that, right? Go back to Isaiah chapter 6 and read the description of the angels that are um, the highest order of angel in the throne room of God, and they're flying around, crying out, holy, holy, holy. We believe that Satan probably was... Uh, one of these high order of angels right in the presence of God um, and what they look like. They have uh, six sets of wings or three sets of wings, six wings. So with two wings, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they're flying around. Okay? And and on top of that, they um, have eyes all over their body. And the word... Uh, for a seraphim, is what that is, um, is serpent-like. That's what the word means, serpent-like. It's very possible, if not very likely, that Satan is a fallen seraphim. So when you see the description in Genesis chapter 3 of the, the serpent, not a serpent, not one of the snakes, but the serpent, what you're referring to here is, this is a depiction of what he actually looks like. If you were to see him physically, he would look like this. And if you see him um, in in Revelation, you see that he retains that serpent-like characteristic. He doesn't look like a red human being with a pitchfork. He looks like a snake. That's... You start to think biblically, you start to actually think a little differently than what we have been told. Isn't that interesting? So here's what he does, okay, and that's now that we're thoroughly freaked out by how Satan actually looks. He says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So his tactic, his scheme, his primary way of undermining human beings in general, um, is to undermine the Word of God specifically. Did God actually say? Question. And then he twists the Word of God. So first he, he poses a question. Did God really say any tree? So now we're a little confused and, and off balance uh, about this whole issue of What does God's Word actually say? What does it actually mean? And here's what we see. Satan's tactic uh, from start to finish, from Genesis 3 all the way through the end of Revelation and every time period in between, every instance in between, is going to fundamentally seek to undermine, to cause confusion, division, or destroy, or twist, or misrepresent the Word of God. If you start with a twisting or a misunderstanding or a, a rejection of the Word of God, then everything else is possible. Every, every sin in the world is possible if you, all you have to do is undermine the Word of God and you can do anything that you want. Because we don't know who God is, we don't know who we're accountable to, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, we don't have any sense of eternity, we don't know what it means to be human, we don't know what the world really, is, what the purpose is, there's no value, your value is whatever you want it to be, whatever you want to do is, is good enough for you, and every other seeming, I'm going to say deception, I was going to say truth because it's not truth, it's, but every lie, every manipulation, every deception is possible All you have to do is undermine the Word of God. And the the place that this is happening most is not the world. It is the seminaries, okay? The colleges that say that they teach the Bible, one of the things that many of them do is they start right away with trying to undermine. This is such a bizarre thing. I went to a school that did this. They undermine the Word of God by trying to make it a man-made thing that we can be judges of and destroy and tear apart and reconfigure however we want and then church can be whatever you want it to be. And somehow, by the grace of God, there are people that are still graduating from these seminaries who respect and honor and love God, who still believe and respect God's Word enough to say, I believe in the truthfulness of God of the word of God, that what happened throughout history um, from ancient times was that God spoke to prophets, people who heard from God, had a relationship with God. They wrote by the power of the Holy Spirit, the words of God, and they passed that along to other people so that they also might know who God is. And that Satan's attack, this is such a a strange thing, uh, An amazing thing, God's power and his preservation of his word, even with all the attacks that have come throughout the ages, we still have the pure um, word of God given to us from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. It's, It's amazing. And we can still, in 2023, you feel old? 2023. We can speak the truth of God's word to the people of God without any fear or doubt that what we have is the word of God. It's amazing. Satan loves to undermine the word of God, twist it, get you off kilter. Um, And so, unfortunately, uh, Eve here listens to this, and here's what she says. So she says, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, uh, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, Eve um, begins to get off track right there because if you go back to Genesis 2, uh, verse 17, you see what God really said. said, But, well, I'll start in verse 16, the, the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, Just for reference sake, it's not an apple tree, okay? I know it's always depicted as an apple tree. I don't know why. Maybe that was just the tree people could eat from readily all the time. But it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, okay? He says, you you should not eat of this. You shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Did God say you can't touch it? So two things are happening, I think. One is that there is a tendency of man and we all, I, we all kind of have this, to create boundaries or rules or religions around things that are important to us that God did not necessarily tell us to do, but we think that if we do that, then we won't do the other thing. So we kind of begin to create our own form of religion because it, it's more comfortable to us. So we have to be careful because what happens in Jesus' day, they were doing this, Uh, They had all kinds of man-made rules and regulations so that they wouldn't break God's rules. But what happened was they forgot what God's rules were and they actually were only doing what their own rules were telling them to do. They were breaking the law and the word of God in order to fulfill their own laws and rules because they'd created so much of a boundary or a regulation around what they thought was the truth. So what we try to do, And we're not 100% successful at this, okay? I'm not saying that we're great at this, but what we try to do is get rid of all the man-made stuff and get back to the authenticity of what God's Word says about how to have a relationship with Him without anything in between as much as possible, okay? So... I'm always going to tell you that, that that's what we're trying to do. There's always going to be a little bit of a, a man-made tendency or, or a tendency of humanity to want to have rules, regulations, forms, formulas, systems that we think are kind of getting us there. Okay, we, we rebel against that as much as we can. But this is part of what she does. The other part of what really happens here is where she gets off track is that Before this, Eve and Adam, they're in the garden, they're doing their thing, they're naming the animals, um, and they're swimming in the creek, and they're picking fruit, and they're, I don't know what all they're doing. I know they're tending the garden. Uh, It's not hard, it's pleasant, it's easy, it's, you know, it's enjoyable, and there's this one tree in the midst of the garden that they just don't even think about they don't go near it they don't pay attention to it they're not worried about it it's just that one tree that God says don't eat of that tree and they're like okay i'm not going to eat of that tree and they're just minding their business doing their thing until satan points it out and says look you need to pay attention to this tree and right away their focus you realize you can only focus on one thing at a time so he gets them focused on this tree and off of what god it really isn't about the the rule. It's not about the regulation. It's not about the command. It's about the respect that they have for God to do what he said, no no matter what that thing is. But now their focus is on the tree and whether or not the tree is actually good to eat or not. Is, Is it poison? Is there something wrong with it? Is it corrupted? Is it evil? Is there something bad about the tree in and of itself? And here's what happens in, in our minds, okay? This is the thing that Satan loves to get us all worked up about. Why is it that God says that I'm not supposed to do this thing? Why? I'm not hurting anyone. You ever heard that before? I'm not hurting anyone. It's it's really just about me doing what I like, and if it doesn't hurt anyone else, then who, it's not, none of their business. Why does God want to interfere with my life? In fact... We have all kinds of arguments that will begin to steer people into thinking that, well, God made you, and if he made you to want that thing, to de- desire that thing, whatever that thing may be, fill in the blank, doesn't matter what it is, then that thing must be good in and of itself, right? Because God made you, and he made you that way, and if you like that thing, then that must be okay with God. Sound like a reasonable argument? And you're all like, this is a trick question. I know it's a trick question. I'm not sure why, but I know it is. And the whole point that or reason why it's a trick question um, is because Genesis 3 tells us that the things that we want are not godly things because we're fallen, we're sinful. And only when we pay attention to God and who He is and what He wants do we get back onto wanting the things that He wants and off of the thing that we... We don't understand why the things that we want to do are bad. Bad for us, bad for others, bad and in, in coming into uh, uh, disagreement with our relationship with God and cause that kind of division. We don't know that. We don't understand. You know how many things you don't know and understand? A lot of things. Right? There's so many things I don't have a clue about and god does and so why do i need to trust him instead of myself is because he knows more than i do so i i depend on that but her focus now because satan has pointed it out is on that thing that she's trying to figure out why this might be bad satan loves to do that so then he just blatantly lies to her you will not surely die he's just going to contradict god's word You will not surely die. The tree itself is not bad. There's nothing poisonous about it. It's good to eat. In fact, it's going to make you more like God, which is an interesting issue because um, if you realize from before, what does Satan look like? What does Satan look like? Snake, serpent, okay? What does Eve look like and Adam? They're perfect humans. Made in the image of God, which means that they're a physical reflection of who God is. They're a mirror of God. He made them in his image. So who looks more like God? Who is more like God? Satan or the human beings? The human beings, without question. So when Satan says, you'll be like God, Eve should say, I'm already more like God than anybody. What, what do you mean? I'm going to be more like God? I'm the most like God. Other than God, I'm the most like God. Isn't that weird that he would put that in there? But she's not thinking about those things anymore. Now she's thinking about the tree, what the tree is and what it can do. and So he blatantly lies to her. She takes this in and she realizes as she begins to ponder through, well, it looks good. Um, the tree is... Uh, pleasant. It's good for food. It's delightful to the eyes. It's, it's desires to, to make somebody wise. The only way that you can become more wise now is that you have to actually enter into a realm of doing evil. You, all, you know all about doing good. Now you have to go into a new area, which is to do something wrong. It's the only thing off limits now to, to your experience is, is sinning so she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate so she's deceived she and and here's the interesting thing uh, scripture confirms this all the way through eve was deceived she didn't do this knowingly rebelliously she did it in terms of she was misled and she mi- was misinformed and misunderstood and she did it without an intent to do wrong is she still guilty your ignorance about something being wrong doesn't make you um, innocent. Ignorance does not equal innocence. Um, Adam, on the other hand, is there. And he he's not deceived. And here's what happens. She's focused on the fruit. He's focused on her. Nobody's focused on God. His desire is for his wife. He wants to retain that relationship. And this is what it's going to take. I'm going to do what I know is wrong. He's not mistaken or misled or mis- or deceived. He knowingly does what is wrong in order to keep that relationship. And he possibly knows that he's going to break his relationship with God in order to do it. And here's what's going to happen is that with all of this, everything is flipped upside down. Adam and Eve are made in the image of God. They're more like God than anybody. The order is Adam is leader, Eve is helper, and they are both in dominion over the creatures of the earth. But now they're going to let the serpent be in control and in charge and in authority and tell them what to do. So the whole order is upside down. They're going to actually damage the image of God that they had been gifted and been given, been created with. All of that's going to happen because of this one thing of keeping their eyes on the wrong thing. And, I mean, I don't know if this requires a, a huge point. <laughs> Do you get it? Faith is what keeps us in right relationship with God and all the other things of life in the peripheral. It makes more sense when you keep your eyes on the Lord. But here's what's going to happen because of the fall. Then they, their eyes were open. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. What happens is they become self conscious. And whether your focus is on your life or your problems or uh, the questions and the concerns and the doubts that you have or what other people are doing, um, what it tends to come back to is a self-consciousness. I'm worried about me. I'm worried about how I feel. I'm worried about what I understand. I'm worried about my own perception, how people receive me or do they like me, do they not like me, do they accept me. It's all about my self-consciousness at this point. And it pulls your attention away from God and onto self. And when you do that, God gets small and you get big and your problems increase. So, turn to Matthew chapter 4. There is a solution um, to all this. We have the first Adam, Jesus is called the second Adam. Satan attacks the first adam with lies and he wins he's going to attack the second adam with the same lies and jesus is going to defeat him okay and here's what happens Matthew chapter 4 then jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and after fasting 40 days 40 nights he was hungry no no kidding <laughs> and the tempter so satan is called the devil Okay, so he's the, the accuser. He is called the tempter. We'll get into that in the next couple of weeks. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So Matthew chapter three, at the very end, verse 17, Jesus has been baptized by John the Baptist. He comes up out of the water, the voice from heaven. God said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. When Satan says, if you are the son of God, he is doing the very same thing he did to Eve. Did God really say? He's going to undermine the word of God, right? Trying to get Jesus' attention off of God and onto his concern or doubt or about himself. Onto, in this case, bread. He's hungry. If you're God, you can make these stones into bread. Why don't you go ahead and do that? And here's what Jesus says. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He refuses to get his attention off of God and onto anything else. It's not even simply that he's referring back to Scripture and he's biblically minded, which he is, but it's that he's refusing to get his mind and his attention off of his father. He's going to retain that relationship. He's going to retain his obedience to that relationship. He's not going to take his eyes off of his father. He will not let Satan undermine that. Verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. He said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written right? Satan loves to twist the word of God. He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The word of God really does say that. Satan wants to get Jesus' attention off of God and onto something else. And Jesus refuses to do that. So how Satan twists the word of God, he'll get you focused on one thing in the Bible and make that all. And what Jesus does, he says, um, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the Word of God does say that, but it also says this over here. And we have to get the whole counsel of Scripture so I can understand the whole nature of God. I'm going to keep my eyes on Him. I'm not going to take my eyes off of Him for anything else. And then He says, again, the devil took Him to the very high mountain and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and He said to Him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship Me. Which seems like such a bizarre thing doesn't it? Like, of course Jesus isn't going to worship Satan. That doesn't make any sense. But here's what Satan is trying to get Jesus's eyes off of God, off of his relationship with his father, doubt his self. But here he's trying to get his attention onto his plan. What does the Bible say Jesus's plan was? For God so loved the world That he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus has come as the Savior to save the world from sin. Right? Satan says, listen, let's just come up with an agreement. I'll just give you the world. You don't have to fight me for it. You don't have to destroy me for it. You don't have to defeat. You don't have to go to pain. You don't have to be killed. You don't have to give your blood. You don't have to take the sin of the world on yourself. You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to do any of those things. You can just have it. It's all yours. Look, all your plans, all your purposes. We just settle it right here and now without pain. Sound good? I mean, doesn't that sound good? Because the Bible says that Satan is the prince of this world. He is the prince of the, the uh, ruler, of, uh, the god of this world. He's the prince of the, the air, okay? meaning the heavens or the, the realm, the spiritual realm of this world. And I've said this before, and I believe this, this is how he is the uh, god of this world. Little g, not, not big g god, is he is god by uh, majority consent. He says, I'll just give it to you. Now, here's the thing. If he does that, he may avoid pain, suffering, and all the rest, but it's, it's a lie. It's a, it's, it's a deception. It's a bait and switch. It's not going to work. He knows that the actual plan in, of God is to give his life in order to win as many that will trust in him. Because it comes back to faith, not works. Those who trust, those who believe, those that will depend, those who will persevere in their walk with the Lord. It's not about a simple, quick, just do this. We'll just dunk people in water and then they'll be saved and they don't have to go to hell anymore. It's not a, it's not a plan like that. It doesn't work that way. So here's what I have found. Um, and I think that you can confirm this. If you will trust in the Lord life will at some times get harder, not easier. Walking with Christ, there are things that do get easier, but there are many things that get harder. Um, Living your life in in such a way that God is honored is going to put you at odds with the world that you're in. You have a sinful nature, and you also have a nature that God has given you through His Holy Spirit, and those two things are at odds in each other, and you feel that tug of war. Uh, you you have friends and family and people that you love that when you um, give your life to Christ, you find that you have less and less in common with them. Your values are different, the things that you talk about, the, the kinds of uh, things that you enjoy, spend your time doing, your weekends, your, your evenings, the things that you just the connection becomes less and less and less. You go to work, you find yourself even more concerned about the people around you that don't know the Lord and the burden grows and there seems to be more and more concern about the where the world is heading. You're kind of tend to be a little bit more overwhelmed with the state of the world, where, where government is taking us, where, where people's lives are, are taking us, where the culture is going, where the media is coming out. The things that you're hearing and seeing in the news are, are overwhelming because they're so in opposition to what you know the truth is in God's Word and in your relationship with Him and where God wants us. And it just seems like everywhere you turn, there's just, what, what's the solution right? It's an ongoing process of God is doing a work, but man, I'm just, I'm not seeing this revival across the land that I want to see. And Satan loves to take all those different things and say, see, it's just, I don't know, it's not worth it. You can, you can give up on your faith and get along with the world if you're worldly, and you'll just, you'll coast along and things will be a little easier. You won't be in opposition to the people around you. You won't feel that bad about things that are going on. It won't concern you that much. You can do a little bit of good here and there, but ultimately you're just going to do what makes you happy and let everybody else do what makes them happy and I don't have to worry about it anymore. But when you have faith, something changes. changes. You are different. And what Jesus did when he won against Satan in his temptation was he enabled you to become a new creature in Christ, to restore that old image that was destroyed in the fall, that the Holy Spirit in you brings you back to that place where you begin to know that God has a better plan for this world than the plans that this world has for itself. And I'm going to live in a difficult spot for the rest of my life because I'm in opposition to the the direction that Satan wants to take this world. And that's okay because I have a hope for eternity where God is going to make everything right and I'm going to invite as many people as possible because this is what he's doing. He's calling as many people as will respond to faith in Christ that their life, it may be difficult, but it will be better because... I have a peace that this world doesn't offer because I know the God that I trust and I know the promises of his word and I know the hope that he has for eternity. That we can work with a purpose to see things change in people's lives. And there's still going to be problems, there's still going to be pain, but in the midst of that you have God with you because you haven't taken your eyes off of him. Amen? We're going to look a little bit more into the temptation and the accusing and the work of our enemy. I think it's important that we do that. But for today, what we know is this, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And we don't fear the devil. The Bible says it simply, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Just don't give in. And you're at a different place. Amen? Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you that you've given us so many truths, revelations, understandings, Lord, of yourself, what you want, where you're leading us. Help us uh, to lean on you, to grab a hold and not let go. Trust in you. Keep our eyes on you, Lord. Everything in this world is going to try to distract us and keep us off balance and twist around the things that Your Word has revealed, that Your Son has revealed. And Lord, we pray that we would be tenacious, resilient, committed, Lord, to holding on to You. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, Your Spirit will come alongside of us and do what we can't do. Use our little lives our are day-to-day things that don't seem to be very important to us, but, Lord, you can use us in the midst of that to reveal the great truth of who God is. Help us to persevere in that. And Whenever we make a mistake, we mess up, Lord, help us just to come back and say, God, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying, but I'm doing it in faith for your glory. Step alongside of us, Lord, we pray, and we will continue to step towards you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to respond to the Lord, however he is calling you, and I don't know what that is. I don't know if there's been something that you feel like um, you've believed that has been a problem, that you need to just lay it down. I don't know if it's, you just need to restore your faith you're struggling in your faith, maybe today is the day that you say, God, I'm going to choose to believe. I'm going to trust you. Amen. Altar is a place for you to come, kneel humbly, receive whatever God has for you this morning. Let's stand and sing.